My name is Lucy Ripova and I'm the founder and host of Think with Lucy. This series features conversations with startup founders whose companies did not survive or went through a major pivot. I believe it is important to talk about failure as much as success. Failures are important as they make us rethink, reconsider and find new ways and strategies to achieve our goals. I hope this episode will add value to startup founders and anyone aspiring to found a business in the future. This episode is part of a new series focused on founders who built startups that did not survive or went through a major pivot. Rishi Rahman was the founder of Intelligent, a Y Combinator funded company that helped businesses cut operational costs by forecasting demand. He was then the head of growth at Clerk, and most recently he's working on a new startup in the B2B SaaS space. So first of all, thank you for accepting my invite and you know being cool about speaking about your YC experience. I am doing this because everyone knows the success stories. Everyone knows about Airbnb and Stripe, but I believe it's actually more insightful to speak with people who you know, had more failures and can share their lessons and help us understand why they failed, what they would have done differently, and maybe how they will build their next startup. So yeah, thank you for accepting the invite. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Happy to be here and hopefully I can share something that will be helpful. Yeah. So before we dive into your startup journey, it would be helpful to talk about your background and how you went from research in human development and aging to to the tech scene. So can you talk about that? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, so my my background, my academic background for undergrad, I did human development and aging. I went to USC where they have like really the number one gerontology school in the world. So a lot of amazing, amazing research comes out of there. So things around the caloric restriction, extending lifespan. There's this particular guy named Walter Longo, actually that's that's fairly well known now. And a lot of the research coming out of that school is getting mm-hmm. very, very popular and commercialized in various projects. Um, so I went, I went there originally because I was interested in doing a pre-med undergrad. And so I wanted to go to med school afterwards. Yeah. To be honest, like just doing three, four years of school, I was not excited to do another three, four years of school after that and potentially more. Um, so I had done a lot of research, worked in a lot of labs. And at a high level, a lot of this, a lot of these topics are very interesting at the granular level of actually doing the work in a lab, it just wasn't exciting for me. You're spending many, many hours, like fairly isolated. For me specifically, the model organisms we used was C. elegans, so like microscopic worms. And you're just staring at these things in a microscope for hours and like picking at them with like basically a paperclip. And so that really constituted what I was doing most of the time from a research perspective. Mm-hmm. And so again, like when you're kind of done collecting this data and you're looking at like what it means at a higher level and uh, how changing the genetics or the genetic structure of a model organism is affecting health span, lifespan. These things are super interesting, but I just didn't love the day-to-day of it. And so that combined with not really being excited to stay in school any longer, I ended up kind of diverting from this uh, medical school track. And that's how I ended up in the tech world. So uh, I figured, hey, you know, if uh, I go get a job and I hate this too. Maybe I'll just suck it up and go to medical school and maybe that's life as an adult. But honestly, for three months or so into the into the first job I had, I, I just loved it and I never looked back. 
but there are a lot of startups in the longevity, you know, human development scene. Why did you not go for them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's mostly because there was a pretty large disconnect between me doing this work in college and then me getting interested in startups later. So I think you're absolutely right. There are a lot of like digital health companies. There's a lot of DC health companies. There's starting to be a lot of companies in the healthcare space, like for longevity. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of these companies are fairly new. So I don't think there were tons of healthcare startups in the longevity space in yeah. you know, 2016, 2017, when I was graduating college, but that's changed. So like, I don't know, there's a commercialized project called ProLon. Actually, Walter Longo, the guy I mentioned, is the chief scientist for that project. And they sell like a little kit and it's like a meal fasting kit. I don't think it's been around for very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's kind of that space, right? Um, the other thing was that in, in school, I think a lot of startup founders I meet today, especially a lot of like YC folks that are really young, they've been pursuing startups. They've been interested in doing their own company since, you know, maybe even high school. And a lot of times they start taking this pretty serious in college. I really just was not in that world at all. I had no idea. I, I really didn't know much about startups. I didn't know a ton about the tech world at all. And so it really took me having this first job at a company called Aptis, where I did sales to learn more about this entire ecosystem. And then really the next job after that, where I worked at TalkDesk is where I started to get really interested in startups. I started working with a lot of startups for a marketplace product I was building and slowly got deeper and deeper and then decided, you know, probably three years plus, maybe three, four years out of college that I was interested in doing startup. So yeah, hopefully a long answer, but yeah, there's just a very large disconnect between college and actually doing startup. I, I totally hear you. So in TalkDesk, you were working in a partnerships role, right? Were you thinking about learning coding and switching to a more you know tech-based role? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I probably think about that fairly regularly, about how necessary is it to be technical. I think if you are a technical founder, I wouldn't say it's like easier, right? Like you can only develop so many skills and unless you're gifted and or like work hard enough to kind of be well-rounded and be a great technical founder that also understands the business side. But yeah, no, I think about it all the time, especially for things like YC, where they skew much more to technical founders. A lot of early stage VCs these days skew more to technical founders. You see like Y Combinator and Dreesen Horowitz having these theses around venture uh, which are like, hey, like we can teach technical founders business skills. We cannot teach business founders technical skills. It's kind of a, a short way to put it, maybe. And so I, I think don't think that's completely accurate, though. Oh, please, I don't yeah. think. Right. Do you agree with that? Um, oh, I think that they're, I, it's accurate in that that's what their thesis was. Do I believe that it's actually accurate? Like in that, that's what I believe. I say yes and no. Like. I think from the perspective of a venture capitalist, right? Like you can take a technical person that deeply understands like a product and or a market. And as they grow as a founder, you can surround them by people. You can surround them with people who will teach them kind of like the business skills necessary. And I actually do think that's fairly true. I mean, just from the experience of going from college to the real world, right? Like I'm not saying college wasn't worth it. Like I think there are good things that happen there, but the specific skills or academic things I learned were certainly not necessary to me getting a job. And the things I learned that were relevant to me now, I learned all completely on the job. 
And so these are kind of like business skills learned through like osmosis through people around me. So in that sense, I think that's true. Whereas if you were to flip it around and you had a great business founder and you were to try and teach him technical skills as the business grew, it just like wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. I also know a few tech founders who are really good at tech, but not good at sales. Right. And I think it's, it's difficult to teach people how to sell things. You either have it or you don't have it. And, and the human interaction aspect is, I think innate and in, in you, are you an extroverted person? Are you introverted? So yeah, it's hard to teach, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with that question as well. Like, I'll, I'll, like an anecdote would be part of the reason I was interested in taking a tech sales role right out of school was I had read this book called To Sell as Human by Daniel Pink. It sounds like maybe you're aware of it. It's mm-hmm. a very small book, but essentially the gist of it is that almost not all jobs, but a large portion of jobs become sales jobs at a certain point. They either are sales jobs from the beginning or they become sales jobs. So a good example is a lawyer. If you come in as an entry-level lawyer, you're doing mostly legal work. If you become the partner of a firm, you're basically an account manager. You're, you're kind of doing sales. And so you see this pattern happening over and over again. When I was in school, I didn't feel like I was a very salesy person or good at sales necessarily. Like I remember uh, being part of you know, an Indian family. It's a very large extended mm-hmm. family. And when I would have certain things go on in school or whatever I was, I was working on, my parents would want to introduce me to like more extended family members. They're like, oh, this person could help you out. Or they have worked on that similar thing. You should talk to them. And I would be like nervous or almost scared to like call them. I was like, oh, I don't know them. Like, what am I going to talk yeah. about? And going from that to, you know, a few months into the job at Aptis, cold calling strangers, um, I certainly think maybe it was I had a sales personality and it was brought out of me in some way. So mm-hmm. maybe there's that, but I certainly felt that I did pick up sales skills or like learned how to do sales. And I also feel like within a year of doing sales, like I think my personality changed uh, to a certain extent as well. So I'll pause there, but I, I also struggle with that question as well. And I don't know if there's a real answer. Let's talk about intelligent. So you were working in a business role at TalkDesk and how did you get the idea for, uh, for intelligent and how did you know that there was a problem like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the quick background for how I got to the pro, like the marketplace role at TalkDesk was I started at TalkDesk to help build like an enterprise sales team. So TalkDesk was doing great, growing very fast, selling lots of like their like phone widget project uh, product, but it was to really small companies. Like they were selling five seat deals, 10 seat deals, which is great, but they wanted to move further at market. Um, and so coming from a large kind of enterprise sales org, that was like a background that I had. And quite frankly, it was, it was a little bit of a fast failure. Like, I think we talked to a lot of companies that logos people would recognize, you know, Walmart, Uber, and a lot of people thought the product was very slick. It worked really well, but it just did not have all the features needed to support, you know, a global or even multinational contact center. And so most of that team actually like was disbanded, either left or kind of moved to different sales groups uh, at TalkDesk. And at the time, the CEO asked me to move into this uh, new, into the product org and work with our head of product on building a marketplace. And the theory there was, I think app stores have gotten a lot more popular, integrated app stores have gotten a lot more popular. At the time, this was fairly new. There was Salesforce App Exchange, um, but even they weren't doing integrated products as much. And so the idea was to build almost like an enterprise Apple app store where you could discover even trial and then buy any adjacent product. And so some examples are like, if you are 
talk tests you're selling these phones. You know, voice analytics is a great example. You're using that phone data to then power voice analytics. Um, there's also a category of software called workforce management, which is a really popular category. And for workforce management, it's basically this like analytics and operations tool set that managers of a call center use to uh, optimize and improve operations. So, you know, if you have 10 people on the phones, you kind of know everybody, it's fine. Once you get to 50, it's a little harder. You get to 500, it's even harder. You got thousands, it's almost impossible to do this operations without software. So what I was noticing was talk to us customers that were hitting about this 50, 100 seat mark, they would all need workforce management. And the most popular product we were selling from the marketplace was workforce management. And I also realized that the workforce management space was very mature. So there's large public company comps. Uh, if you've heard of companies like Nice or Variant or Kronos, you know, these are billion dollar public companies for the most part, but the technology is really old. Almost all these companies had been started in the late nineties, early two thousands, and the actual technology hadn't changed much. So the theory was, look, this call center space is not going away. It's a very, very large market. Things are being modernized pretty quickly on the telephony side. You see companies like Twilio, TalkDesk, AirCall, you name it. Um, there was a bunch of modernization happening there, but then the adjacent tool sets were not being modernized. My theory was there was probably a very small overlap between technologists and folks that were interested in call center. Like you just think about where call centers are located. They're generally in like low tax states, think like Texas, Florida, and not to say there aren't startups there, but you know, startup hubs are like New York, San Francisco. And I just don't think there was a, lot, like a big overlap in those worlds. My thinking was like, Hey, this is a great market. This is a tool that's needed. It needs to be modernized. It's very straightforward in terms of like the product ideation, you know, it's not simple to build, it's not trivial, but the, the vision is pretty simple. We're just gonna modernize this, this suite of products. Um, and so I had no sort of experience, but I thought, you know, even I could do this. So that, that's how I got started on Intelligent. And you were alone at the time or were you pitching into a friend of yours? Yeah, it's a really, really great question. So there were two folks at TalkDesk that kind of started ideating with. Um, so they were coworkers way later down the line. So after we had kind of gotten, or after I'd gotten like initial customer LOIs and got a prototype developed, uh, raised money, got into YC, these two folks from TalkDesk ended up joining as the co-founders. And so eventually we kind of came back together. But in the early days we were, we were ideating together, yes. Mm -hmm. And what was that like when you were applying to YC? What At what stage were you at the time? Did you... Had you already raised external funding or were you bootstrapped? Yeah. So the story of YC is, is a little bit interesting. I think we had a little bit of a securitist path to getting there. And so what happened was in early 2020, I started fundraising. So in mid 2019, I left TalkDesk to go work on this whole time. Over that summer, I was able to get a prototype built in the back half of 2019 went to a couple call center conferences and was able to get interest in the product we were building, get some customer LOI signed. And so that led us to being able to raise or like that led other folks to be interested in what we were doing. And I had started getting offers for like pre-seed checks. And so at that point I realized, okay, maybe this is a good time to fundraise because people are kind of organically getting interested in this. So I think we started fundraising in like the end of January I want to say last week of January and closed a couple checks pretty fast. The goal was actually to raise just a half million dollars um, pre-seed ended up closing that pretty quickly being a fairly like naive uh, first time founder. I didn't maybe totally understand the dynamic between like different 
incentives between like investors and founders. I think generally they're pretty well aligned, but there are slightly different incentives. And so one of our investors who, who's a great guy and was very supportive and have you know, really nothing negative to say about him, but you know, he said, Hey, I think you should raise some more money um, after he had written a check. And so, you know, thinking he's a super smart guy, I don't know anything. Yeah. I was like, yeah, let's go raise some more money. Um, and so kept raising actually through February and March because of that and kept meeting folks. And then in March, 2020 is when kind of COVID hit the U S um, or like, you know, COVID was spreading, I'm sure. But, uh, it's like when the NBA decided to close shop, uh, the market tanked. And there was this period where I think from a founder perspective, it was unclear if we were ever going to see money again, or at least see money for a very long time. And so then at that point, the strategy really did shift into like, hey, you should probably try and get your hands on as much money as possible right now and reduce burn and try and make sure there's enough money on the balance sheet to be to survive, you know, potentially 18 months or more. And so then at that point, it became like, hey, we can raise more money to, oh, we should definitely do this because it might mean the survival of the business. And we had an investor suggest applying to Y Combinator at that point. The reason mainly being that if we'd gotten into Y Combinator, they'll write a guaranteed check. So that's just like another um, hundred grand or so. It was 150K at the time, just on the books. So uh, that's why we actually ended up applying to YC. And then through that, because we had already raised money, raised from specifically one fund that was very tied to YC and mostly invest in YC founders, we'd raised from an angel that was an XYC founder at a pretty large exit and had met a, a couple other YC founders through this fundraise, was able to get a few recommendations. And that helped a lot, I'm sure, with getting kind of an interview and getting accepted eventually. Going back to the first prototype, who built it? Did you hire an agency? I did hire somebody, but not an agency. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, generally, I would say I've worked with engineers all over the world in India, Portugal, South America, parts of Europe, etc. Almost always what I find is that if you have a direct personal relationship to them and or like you have a very good reference, things go very well. Or um, if you're working with a larger team, if you have someone in that country that you trust like implicitly to help you kind of manage those engineers, things go well. If you don't have those things, you go through agencies, they're kind of strangers, uh, at least in my experience. I know others probably don't match this, but in my experience, things typically don't go very well. <laughs> I've had a few founders on the podcast and all of them told me that who had had agencies that it didn't work out and they had to start from scratch. So agencies are not the way to go. Yeah, um, I, I think that's absolutely right. And so I, I think it matters. I've had people ask me like, hey, where is a good place to get contractors? Should I look in India or Europe or whatever? I think the location matters a lot less than the relationship that you have with them. And so the way that I got the prototype built was one of the guys at talk test that I was working on this idea with when we we're kind of in this like ideation phase, he had built a company previously. And so he had hired some engineers that he thought were quite good. And one of the engineers that he had worked with for about three or four years was available. And so that's how I met her and um, she was great. And she helped me kind of put together the initial prototype. Mm -hmm. And so what did you do with the prototype? You introduced it to companies that were customers of TalkDesk that you had existing relationships with? Yeah, so just about. So, you know, the, the thing barely worked, to be honest. Like you could kind of show what the product would look like, but it, 
It wasn't really totally functional. Mm-hmm. So very, very much a prototype, but you know, a picture is kind of worth a thousand words, a demo is worth 10,000. And so it really helps crystallize what this product could be in people's minds. And the conversations get like more serious. Cause you can ask, you can start to ask things like, Hey, for what you're seeing in front of you, if this worked in this way, would you pay for it? What would that be worth to you? And you can start asking kind of these more pointed questions you've ever read like the mom test it's like those those kind of questions get a lot mm-hmm. easier when you have something to actually put in front of someone and it was just that and so the folks i was meeting was came from like two different places one was personal relationships i'd made through meeting people at talk desk um some of them were talk desk customers some of them weren't and then through relationships that i'd made from like conferences and so at conferences i knew a lot of vendors and through those vendors they would just introduce me to people at conferences i would meet you know customers um, or potential customers and so the LOIs that we had were probably a good mix. I think maybe a third of them were from existing talk to customers, but the other two thirds were just people we'd met in the industry. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about LOI, you mean letter of intent. Yep. Can you talk about what that means and why you thought it was the best way to go about uh, yeah. getting sort of uh, the traction from customers? Definitely. So um, I'll talk about what it is, why I thought it was a good idea at the time. And I would actually push back. I would not suggest doing LOIs for most things, but what I did. Um, so LOI is a letter of intent. It's basically a non-binding contract. So if you have a sales contract, it's very transactional. You're giving them a product or a service and they're paying you money and it's contractual and it's, it's binding, legally binding to a certain extent. Um, an LOI is like basically the same thing, except it's not binding. It's saying, hey, we're, we're promising that we're going to deliver this product with these features on this timeline. And you're kind of promising that if we do that, you would be willing to pay this much on these terms. That being said, the customer can kind of opt out at any time. Um, there's no legal restriction. I mean, as a tiny startup, you're generally not going to sue anyone anyways. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. That being said, there, there is like a mental difference, I think, when people sign an LOI versus a contract. I think people do take a contract more seriously. That being said, having an LOI does show some intent. Like if you're going to raise money, an LOI is better than nothing, but a sales contract would be better than an LOI. Mm-hmm. Um, so my thinking was like, look, we have nothing to sell, so I can't do a sales contract, so we should probably do LOIs. In hindsight and having some more startup experience, I would suggest folks just go straight to contracts. Um, if you need to give a discount, if you need to give the product away for the first three months, mm-hmm. um, whatever it is, that's fine. But if you have a contract and you frame it as a contract, I think you'll get much better feedback from people and you'll get more people that are serious rather than just like kicking the tires or, Hey, this is a cool product. Maybe we'd like to try it. It's an interesting experiment I think they'll evaluate more as a purchase of like, okay, do we actually need this? Do we actually want it? What are the requirements we really need to meet in order for us to use this? And I think people take it a little bit more seriously. And if you're going to go through the effort of getting something signed, it's much better to just go through it once. So an LOI does give you a path to convert to a contract, but then if you hit all the LOI terms, you're then going to go sign another contract. So then there's going to be a, probably more negotiation, more back and forth, more just bugging people to go sign documents. Whereas if you can sign a contract directly, even if it's not unpaid for a certain like POC time period, it, it, it's already done. So once it converts, it's, it's done. The contract's in place. You don't have to go back and forth on it again. You don't have to negotiate things again. Um, so yeah, so that's why we did an LOI. And I probably wouldn't do it again, though. I'd probably go straight to a contract. And what was the first product? What was the MVP? Yeah. So maybe this will get into some of the other questions you wanted to ask about why things didn't work out. Um, But first product was demand forecasting. Um, So 
If you look at workforce management, just keep it very simple. There's kind of three main parts of A, B, and C. A is the forecasting piece. So you bring data in, it tells you what's going to happen in the future. You then use that forecasting data or that forecasting output to plan operations. So part B is like a scheduling product where you have this workflow of, okay, you have your agents, you're actually taking your available agents and mapping them to a schedule where that schedule matches like the demand curve that you get from the forecast. And the final piece is called interday, uh, intraday management. So then you're actually, let's say you're the operator of a call center, the day is actually going and the forecast probably doesn't match exactly or things come up that were unexpected. And so then you need some operational tools to help make changes throughout the day. And so it's a mix of communication product, products, it's a little bit of scheduling, et cetera. And so those are like the three main components of workforce management. Most people start with scheduling. Um, they start with a workflow tool. Our theory was, hey, the way this product needs to be modernized, it needs to be a data first product. So we should start where the data lives, which mm -hmm. is the forecasting product. And so that's why we built forecasting to start. And I think it was a good theory in practice, actually going through the learnings. It was like a very bad wedge in reality. Mm -hmm. How did you build the forecasting model? And why was it a bad wedge? Whatever that means. So I think the... The reason it was a bad wedge is probably more interesting, but to give you a quick answer on how do yeah. we build the forecasting model, we had access to a very large BPO and were able to get a large amount of anonymized data. So we got over the data hurdle pretty quickly. Um, it's like the biggest problem in ML generally, like the model is all well and good, but at the end of the day, like the volume and quality of data you have is probably going to be what determines your success. Um, from a model standpoint, we started with open source tooling. So there's a competition called M competition where there's a lot of great work that comes out of there. So there was a open source forecasting model we found from there. There was also a time series forecaster from open source project from Facebook called Facebook Profit. And so those are the two models we ended up deciding to use and build on top of. So we took those, kind of combined them in a certain way, mm -hmm. and then customized it from there. And we probably tested 20 to 30 different open source models and combinations of these models before we landed on on these two to start with, and then you you know you build a whole data pipeline and it's it's fairly esoteric, but uh, there are great open source tools actually now being built that will do this entire data pipeline for you. Um, so that's the product piece. Going more into like why it was a bad wedge. So I think forecasting as like a black box service is typically not a good place to build a company or an initial product. Um, I get a lot of founders actually reaching out to me because I did a forecast company asking me about forecasting for their domain or whatever it is. I almost never hear something that changes my mind. Um, so the reason forecasting is really tough is towards the end of the company, I did try and actually pivot into a different market, which was de uh, demand forecasting for on-demand delivery, because we were able to use the same exact product, same exact data model. And instead of telling you, you're going to get this many phone calls at this time, we could tell you, you're going to get this many deliveries at this time in this region, depending on how you measure region. And then you can enrich it with, you know, weather data or traffic data. So it seems from, you know, a theory standpoint, like that would be really interesting to demand uh, to on-demand delivery companies. And what you find in practice is companies that are just getting started, they just don't care about optimization, like 15, even 20% optimization just doesn't matter. Like it's more about getting the business off the ground. They're much more low hanging fruit operationally than quick optimizations. And then at the very top end of the market, so, you know, if we're sticking in this on-demand delivery model, think about like an Instacart or a DoorDash, like these kind of data science problems become pretty core to the company. It becomes a, like a significant differentiator mm -hmm. and starts to become part of like the moat 
for their business and like yeah. what makes it hard to copy this. So in order for you to be able to sell on the top end of the business, one, you're kind of replacing data scientists. So you're selling to people whose job it is to do this work and you're stepping on their toes a little bit, which makes it a difficult sale. But then on top of that, you're reliant on these data scientists who may not already be very excited about buying this to work with you to prove that this is a good product to them. You need, you're required to get data from them. You're required to work with them. So the people running like your POC are like not always friendly. And then, so you have this kind of contentious environment where you then have to prove your product is like multiple times better for them to not want to use internally. So yeah. really there's a small sweet spot in the mid market where people are kind of interested in this and won't build it themselves, but there's kind of pressure from both sides, top and bottom of the market. And so it makes it a very difficult problem to, to, to wedge it now. And you didn't have any IP, right? You were putting together different open source models to build the product. So that made it even harder to sell to companies like Instacart or. So that's not DoorDash. really quite the case. Like we definitely used open source products as like the base. Yeah. But there's quite a bit of customization you do on top of that to mm -hmm. then refine the model. So let's say you just take the data that we have and you just run it through profit. You run it through any of these open source models. Like you'll get, it's likely that you'll get like directionally a correct result, but you know, 60, 70, 80% accuracy mm -hmm. is, is just a long way off from like a 92, 95% accuracy. And so the marks we were aiming for, especially in context center was a much more mature market and accuracy is really, really important we're going for like 95 plus percent accuracy. And so there's quite a bit of kind of customization and IP you're developing, I guess, or proprietary software you're developing on top. So the product was proprietary. Um, so that wasn't a problem. The problem is it's a black box. Like you're not giving them a tool that makes their job easier. You're replacing a function that they do and they don't quite understand how it's being done. Mm-hmm. So you had this first product, you had a few letters of intent and you decided to apply to YC and you had already raised pre-seed round, 500K, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, we raised, including the YC money ended up being almost a million dollars pre-seed because okay. I raised more than I had originally planned, which was an, another mistake in and of itself, I think. Well, that's still a lot of money in pre-seed. How, how was the fundraising process? Was it difficult? Was it easy for you to raise the money? Any, any advice for aspiring founders? So I think the things that made it easier was yeah. building in B2B SaaS, like uh, building an analytics product in B2B SaaS is like maybe the most eminently fundable thing you could possibly do right. to some extent. Maybe yeah. Web3 is a little easier these days, but like there's, there's certain like structure to what you're actually building. Like, hey, there's a business model here. You have like relevant background experience from talk desk. So these combination of like, hey, how many call center companies are there? There's very few. I was at probably the fastest growing, like most exciting call center company there was. I had insight of building this marketplace. I had insight into these product categories nobody else did. So as there was like very good, I would say like founder market fit. And then not only was there a good founder market fit, but the actual market was good. It's B2B SaaS, like a high margin, highly scalable product. Um, so those things I think made it a lot easier for me than other founders I meet who are building in maybe like a consumer space or building something that's like a little harder to scale or lower margin. Yeah. Um, that being said, like, I don't think fundraising is ever easy, but I also enjoyed the process because it's a little bit of a sales process. So you're just meeting generally as we were meeting good investors, you're just meeting really thoughtful, smart people. And even if they don't want to invest or even if they say no, it's actually kind of 
great getting to meet these folks mm-hmm. and have a good conversation. Um, so in that sense, I found fundraising fairly enjoyable as far as things go. We closed the first few checks pretty quickly. And I would say what made fundraising difficult was really COVID. Once COVID hit, plenty of meetings, like it's very easy to get meetings, but no one was really writing checks, at least not for us. I specifically remember actually a, I won't mention the firm or the partner, but it was a, you know, tier one or tier two venture firm that almost everyone would have heard of. And I had a meeting with somebody and she was in bed and like was wearing like a tank top in bed, like hadn't even gotten out. And then halfway through our meeting, she started watching TV. Um, I could hear like (laughs) what's in the background. Um, and so it was just like, great. Like, you know, you just, that, that, that's like when things get really frustrating when it's like, you're on a meeting, it's really important to you. This is like your life's work. And the person on the other side like, isn't even paying attention because like, they probably know that they're not writing checks at all right now, but they have to keep taking meetings. So things look healthy. I think it's also more difficult to raise money through zoom because it's all based on relationships and feeling the energy of the founder, right? When you're pitching, You just know, okay, this person is good. And I think you can't really convey that through a Zoom conversation uh, the way you would uh, through an in-person meeting, right? I I found that to be absolutely true. Again, it's hard to know exactly because there's so many factors that get conflated. Was it COVID? Was it Zoom? I don't know. But I can tell you that I felt a lot more successful when I was doing things in person. I felt that my hit rate for like second meetings, uh, meeting other partners in the firm, closing checks was much, much higher in person. And that fell off dramatically. I would say the amount of meetings I was taking to close, like I would close like every other meeting or every, every second or third investor, I was closing a check in person on zoom. It was one in 10, one in 15, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you went through YC and you were the first badge that was fully online, right? Yep. Talk about First of all, the interview process, which was also fully online. Was it difficult for you? Was it was it easy? What kind of questions did you get? Yeah, so YC was definitely a challenge. Like, quite frankly, I consider myself very lucky that some people that were involved with the company like really helped us out a lot. So I mentioned there were some YC founders and other YC alumni that, that wrote really great recommendations for us and, and really helped get us an interview. Um, so we actually applied late. I think it was only a few weeks, but we applied late, got an interview. And then the interview process was pretty difficult (laughs) as a non-technical founder. This is typically not like, I don't have the typical background that YC accepts for like a technical B2B SaaS product. And so the first thing, the first interview was pretty rough, honestly, like it, it's a blur. It's like the interview is all of 10 minutes, but I just remember like not feeling like it went well at all. I mm-hmm. remember signing off and thinking, okay, like, well, that's it. I guess we're not getting into YC, but you know, I hung around, you're still waiting to get like the official call. Cause I say like yeah. stay around for like an hour or two. And I got a call and they actually wanted to schedule a second interview, which is not unheard of, but it's like fairly uncommon. Generally you get one interview. And so they wanted to, me to do a second interview. I did the second interview. I felt that the second interview went much better. But once the second interview happened, I at least felt good that like I had gotten a shot, like a real shot. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe we get in, maybe I don't, but at least the interview like went well enough that like I felt like I got across the information I wanted to, like got across what we were building, why it was important, what our skills were, all those things. And if they don't accept this now, like at least, at least I got my shot. You try. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I got a note from one of the interviewers asking for a login to our product. 
And honestly, I was like super, super nervous because like I said, like it kind of worked, but not really. So you could like input data, but it didn't do anything. We would manually collect it. We would manually do a forecast and then we would push information back into the dashboard manually so you could see it. And so me again, not being a technical co-founder and I had uh, the developer was all the way in India on a completely different time zone. I didn't think it was reasonable that I was going to get her to build a new login for him to do it. So I just sent him my own login and I had like this whole write up about like how the product would work mm-hmm. and like what like you kind of do and like uh, all that. And so, and I think he also back channeled and talked to one of our existing investors asking like why they invested in us mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. through like both interviews, looking at the product, seeing that like, okay, we did actually have something getting good feedback. I assume from like our existing investors that night at like nine o'clock way later, I got a call saying we had been accepted. That's amazing. And your co-founders were also non-technical? At the time, yeah. So I had basically promised them that I was bringing on co-founders. And So you were alone at the time? Your colleagues were not with you? Yeah. So I had one guy that did the application with me, but he was not, nobody was full-time doing this with me. Mm. And so I basically had promised YC that I was going to bring on a CTO and the CTO was like somebody I knew from TalkDesk. He was the head of data science over there. And so he had a great background. And so I don't know how much of a factor that was. Maybe they said, okay, this guy, he's going to get a technical co-founder that can build stuff. Great. Maybe they saw that the prototype and said, okay, somehow he managed to kind of build something. But yeah, like I think they generally require that you're able to build product. And so somehow I was able to convince him of that. So how did it go? How was the the three month online experience? I I loved it. Like I don't know how it would have been in person. I, I imagine it would have been even better. I would say that for somebody that didn't feel especially connected to the startup ecosystem, like I grew up in the Bay Area, I've worked in tech, but I just that is a very different feeling than feeling like you're surrounded in like a founder environment. Like you are kind of in the inner circle of like the startup ecosystem mm-hmm. and like YC is like just a direct ticket to that. The only, the few people I think that I, I hear that don't like YC or don't think it was worth it. I often am very skeptical that they kind of didn't, I, I'm skeptical that they put in a large amount of effort or work. I find there's a lot of people who maybe show up to a program like that and just expect their company to get better or just expect success. And obviously that's not the case. There's like a lot of work to put in it. YC provides you like resources. It provides you great partners. You get to see other great companies. You get to see what good looks like and what good yeah. doesn't look like. They have amazing people coming and giving you lectures. Um, and so if you participate deeply, like you will learn so much. I mean, I personally learned more in those three months. I think I could have learned in, in years working at early stage startups, doing startups. So I found it amazingly, amazingly helpful. So at the end of those three months, did you have a co-founder or were you you still alone? Yeah. So once YC started, then the two people that I had worked with at TalkDesk were willing to join. Um, And so I think in hindsight, maybe I should have seen that as like a little bit of a red flag that they may not have been the best fits to do a startup. Um, You know, they were a little bit older. They were in a little bit of a different life stage. So to me, it made sense that they needed to keep a job and wanted to keep making money. I didn't think there was anything especially odd about it. Again, in hindsight, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but just, it's not something I would want to repeat. Like I would want people that are a little bit more similar to me maybe, and, and kind of want to jump in no matter what, and maybe are a little bit less uh, risk adverse. I think 
the folks I joined, like obviously they were, they weren't risk averse to the point of not wanting to do a startup, but I think it wasn't at the level that would be good for me, or I think, which is maybe necessary for a startup. Um, so at, at the time, to be honest, I just thought like, look, like I didn't know what I was doing when I quit my job. I don't know how I got a prototype built, but it's built. I don't know how I got LOIs, but I got them. I don't know how I raised money, but I did that. And now I have co-founders and I don't know how I did that, but now I have co-founders. So this is great. So I was very happy about it at the time. So then we had uh, basically a three person team. Um, one guy was like kind of a subject matter expert. And the other guy was the, the head of data science who became the CTO of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you raised another 500K at Demo Day together? Uh, no. So we actually never raised money again. You never raised money. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're including the YC money, like YC will write you a check yeah. immediately. Yeah. We raised just about a million dollars. And, and so we actually raised pretty much all of our money before YC. Mm. And then kind of the, the things that we needed were never money after that. So the problems that we faced, the issues that we had, like they weren't things that I like felt that more money was going to solve necessarily. And so we ended up never raising another check. And actually when I shut down the company, we still, we didn't have like a lot, like we spent a good amount, but I ended yeah. up returning a fair bit of money to investors as well. So what did you get out of YC? What were the three things that you were in it for, if not the money? Sure. So one, I guess like, this is not, uh, I won't put this in the top list of three things. Cause I don't, I don't think it, it really is, but like we, we actually did apply to YC for the money, like in our thinking yeah. about YC, like I didn't know how to value YC. I didn't know a lot of YC founders. So I didn't know how valuable YC would be. So in, in my mind, I was like, okay, well, they'll write us a check. Great. Um, but I think YC is valuable for, let's say three things. One is if you're a first time founder and, or you don't have a strong founder network. So you don't have other founders. You can just like shoot the shit with like you don't have other founders you can just ask hard questions or just like tell them how you're feeling you don't have founder friends you could ask like business execution questions of um if you don't know like investors if you don't have an investor network if you like if you felt that you had like a solid team and a product you were working on but you didn't know how to raise money like these are all reasons i think you should do something like yc um if you have these things already if you have a strong founder network you have a strong investor network you know what you're doing you have people you can ask questions to you have people that can help you and support you YC is probably going to be like a lot less valuable because that's kind of a big thing they bring to the table. So for me, I didn't have those things. So that was by far the number one thing is like, you just get really, you're just injected into the core of the startup world and you're immediately given the opportunity to make these relationships. Like certainly the relationships are not made for you, especially in a virtual environment. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult, but it gives you the opportunity to go make that relationship and start building that network around you. So that was by far the number one thing. The number two thing I would say is brand. So YC, like, you know, like going to an Ivy League school, like a Harvard or Stanford, like to a certain extent, like just getting in and going through the program is worth a lot. Like, you know, there's so many people that like drop out of, you know, you hear let the Harvard drop out, the Stanford drop out. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, like it's the badge of getting in that was the impressive part. And that carries a lot of brand with it. And so YC is very similar in that you could learn nothing in YC and you could put in no effort, but like having that little orange badge on your resume does seem to count for a lot. Like it opens a lot more doors for you. It gives people a reason to like take you more seriously because it does confer like you know, it does realistically converse signal, right? Like not every YC founder is amazing. And I'm sure there's huge variance there, but at the very least, like, you know, they've crossed some bar and they think in a certain way. 
And so like, I find that like, as I look for co-founders now for my, for my next kind of venture, I found that when I work with like other XYC folks or YC alumni, things generally go a lot better because we already have this very similar mindset. We've kind of been like indoctrinated or like encultured yeah. in the same way. So that's like really number two. And number three is community. Um, so YC does have like some tools, some community tools, and, and, and the, the community is very, very helpful. Um, so it's like a great place. I think there's been a lot of like discussion about like YC companies only having other YC companies as their customers and people should be wary yeah. of that. And like, that's definitely a thing that um, does happen and you probably want to dig into that. But there is a certain like actual realness to it too. Like a lot of these YC companies, there are real companies that are doing well. And these are folks that are a little bit easier sometimes to get a first meeting with or to get a conversation going with. Um, they're maybe 100%. a little bit more likely to answer a cold email and they can be real legitimate customers. Um, and so that network, whether it's helping you find customers, whether, um, you know, at Clerk, I had questions about like some sales execution things. I can just go to the network and say like, hey, I, I'm struggling with this topic. Can someone help me? And there will be like three, four five people coming out of the woodwork to say like, yes, I just did that last year. I was using these tools. Like if you want to sit down for an hour, I'm happy to like walk you through it. And I constantly lean on that network for things like that all the time. And, and I try to give back. So being a non-technical person, my skills are more in the sales area. So I have founder friends, people through YC that like, I try to help where I can with anything, you know, sales oriented and give back to the community in that way. Um, so I would say those are the three things that are like by far the best thing about the community or the program or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. But yeah. That's amazing. So what went wrong after you finished YC? What were the issues that you were facing? Yeah. Yeah. So I think in some ways, maybe uh, you've probably understood a little bit of it or I've hinted at it that like um, maybe the way that the co-founding team came together wasn't perfect. And so once we started working together full time, I think there was a lot of like negative tension and things we didn't love about working with each other. Were you um, working in person or remotely? We were working remotely as well. We, we had all been remote. We were all in different locations when we worked at TalkDesk. We had talked about co-locating and then COVID kind of put a wrench in that. And then we just kind of tabled it and ended up never really coming back to the topic. And we ended up working remote. And so personally, it wasn't a good fit for me. Like I would never want to work remote with a founding team again. Maybe yeah. as a company scales, it can make sense, um, at least for me, to have some remote folks. But like for the core, you know, let's say one to five people or so, at least I would all I would almost certainly never work remote again. And so that that certainly did not help. I think working remote allows you to avoid a lot of things. It kind of force, it, you know, you don't have that forced closeness, um, which I think is good. But yeah, so I think we had a lot of like, I think, and also I say negative tension because I think tension in a business is good. I think if you don't have any kind of tension, if there's no arguments at all, it's probably actually a bad thing. It, it just depends. What are you arguing about? What is the tension about? Mm -hmm. And so I think we had what I would call like negative tension. And so kind of the combination between having this first forecasting product, which I consider like a bad wedge. I mean, my learnings from this is like, I think forecasting is a great product extension and probably not a great hook in that. Like, I think it's great to either build a workflow tool or something that creates data that doesn't exist. So with like forecasting, you're not creating data, you're like taking existing data and you're giving an output that is like something that they could have figured out themselves in a different way. Um, but if you can create data that wouldn't exist at, at all without you and that has business value and, or you can do a workflow tool, I think that's a better place to start. Mm -hmm. And doing like an ML or 
um, AI tool as an extension of that, I think makes a lot more sense. Um, so that was like my big learning there, but with an initial product that didn't work and then a team that wasn't excited to like restart from zero, I think it made more sense to just kind of cut our losses and call it quits. So we deprecated the product, let go of the entire team and ended up returning the remaining money. Mm-hmm. What's your plan now? What, you know, what, how are you going to apply the lessons you learned in your first startup to your second startup? Yeah, In terms absolutely. of picking founders, building a product. So I think there are really, there's, a, there's, I mean, there's like a million learnings, right? Like, you know, throughout those like two years, I probably made like every mistake you could possibly make, but to boil it down, I think there are like two really, really big things. One is team. So like for team construction, I just didn't know what I was looking for before. And I would say now, like I have a very good sense of like, yes, you want someone with complementary skill sets. You want someone that's technical, but I think the biggest thing is trust. You just want somebody that you can almost implicitly trust because if you have any trust issues, that becomes like this cycle, this background process that's constantly running in your mind. And it's, it never allows you to be a hundred percent on the business because you're constantly thinking about these other things. So I think having someone that you can implicitly trust is great. Like I would rather have someone that's like an A plus on trust and like a B plus on uh, competency than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Of course you want A plus on both, but you know, (laughs) to make a point there. And then the other thing is like, I think complementary skill sets, it's like, sounds obvious, but I think you really want to sit down with this person and over time, like constantly revisit and have conversations about like, what are the things that you think you're good at? And like, what do you enjoy doing? What are the things that you think you need help with or you're bad at? And what do you like not enjoy doing? And is there like a really good fit there? And if there are overlaps, are you willing to have someone be in charge of every job to be done? Like you need everything to fall to one person and you need one person to be responsible. And I think when there's like a little bit too much overlap, you tend to like share things because it's like a low conflict way to deal with something is like, oh, look, we could both do it. And that's like a recipe for like failure and disaster almost every time. So I think team is a big one. And like how I'm specifically going about it now is just taking more time. You know, I'm not rushing into anything. I have a few different people I want to work with. Um, The guy I'm working with right now, things are going fantastic. They're going really well. Uh, We're getting along great, but there's no reason to like rush it. Like, even though things are going well, I don't want to just go, Hey, like we've been working together for a few weeks. This is great. Like we'll probably have to work together for like a month, two months, three months and like spend a lot of just like personal time together. So like, like half the time we hang out, we're working a lot of times we're just like going out and doing things together. And it's just like, am I going to be able to stand this person? Because if we start building a business together, we're going to spend all of our time together and we're probably going to see each other more than anybody else significant in our lives, at least for the next few years. Um, so that's what kind of what I learned on the, on the team side. The other big one is like how you validate an idea. So I came to intelligent from a very theoretical perspective. Like I had the on the ground experience at TalkDesk. I saw a lot there. And like I said, it was a very good, I think like founder market fit. But at the end of the day, I wasn't pushing it. Like, I don't think I was pushing our customers enough. Like when I say like we did LOIs and sales contracts, like I think doing proper contracts is one way to kind of push your customers more into like understanding, do they really need this? And I think approaching things from a more like practical customer centric approach would be a better way to validate an idea. I think you definitely need to understand the market and you want to have a theory and you, that helps you build a vision, which helps you pitch to investors. And certainly like the theoretical part of it is very important to raising money. But I think the success of the business comes from the practical 
experience with customers and understanding their problems deeply and just like making something that they want or need. So those are the two biggest things I learned. Hopefully they were like not too high level and convoluted, but feel free to like dig Super in. Super helpful. Are you planning to apply to YC again? We're talking about it again. Like I think a lot of programs like YC, it's very important that you're like very close and you understand who your team is. Like, I think there's a lot of great programs out there now. I think it's okay if you're not hundred percent set an idea, but you should have your team very set. If you're not sure about your co-founder, I think you should just continue to work together before you do these things. So I think that's what we're waiting for is there are some different programs that I think are a little bit more geared to people figuring it out. Antler is one of them. If you've heard of yeah, Antler is one. I think Entrepreneur First is, is very similar. There are a few like fellowship type programs in the Bay Area now that um, will give you like a small amount of money to work an idea, but like it's very low pressure. Mm-hmm. to like make sure that specific idea kind of like works. Um, so I think things like that are a little bit more appropriate for the stage we're at. Um, I think absolutely we would consider YC. As a second time YC alum, I think some of the things to consider are like, YC has changed a lot, right? Like, so again, if you don't have this network, if there's just, you're you're kind of an, like an outsider in certain, certain ways, like YC will be unbelievably helpful. I really suggested, especially the first time founders. But let's say you've done YC or you're a second time founder that learned a lot. I think YC is helpful from a customer acquisition perspective. So if you have a tool that is perfect to sell to other technology startups or mm-hmm. other startups in general, YC makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. then like the whole scaling of YC is actually a benefit. The fact that you have like three, 400 companies in a batch is actually a huge value add because now you have like three, 400 people to sell to versus like 20, uh, which yeah. was back in the day. Yeah. Now the flip side is like, it is true. Like they have not scaled up partners at the same rate. They scaled up companies. A lot of the stuff YC teaches is now like public knowledge. Like yeah. and that's on YC themselves. If they actually release, they do this. Like you can do startup school. A lot of the stuff they teach you in startup school is like really the same stuff they teach you at YC. People in YC. And you get really good students. deals as well. Yeah. 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 You get like all those product deals. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think like, a lot of the like older benefits of YC, the things that people think of about YC, they have been diminished to some extent. But I think there are like new benefits of like YC scaling. And so if your company is aligned to take advantage of these new benefits, you should absolutely probably do YC. For what I'm working on right now, it lo- it's looking like our market is going to be like more enterprise type companies. So uh, at the low end, it's going to be like Series B, Series C companies, and then like up from there. So given that, it's unlikely that YC would be especially advantageous to us. And then, so then you have to consider, okay, 7% dilution worth it just to get, you know, meetings with partners and stuff like that. And so I think it's a, a much harder decision to make the second time around, but we're certainly considering it. 100%. Well, they've raised the funding to 500K now, I've heard. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a great deal. I'm, yes. I'm very happy about it. Um, I think it also will force people to focus on their companies more during the batch. The last few years, there's been a huge focus on like fundraising during YC. Yeah. Because like, you know, the hottest companies don't go to demo day, you know, just kind of like some of these things being thrown around. Whereas hopefully, and I think I am seeing this to a certain amount is like companies are really going to take demo days more seriously and they're going to wait to fundraise until demo day. And I think that will help kind of almost bring YC back to its roots in a way. And obviously more money for founders is always great. And quite frankly, the only people I hear that complain about the new deal is seed stage investors. And so anytime investors complain about something, you can almost guarantee it's good for founders. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, I'm conscious of time. Is there anything else, any any advice you would like to give to our listeners? Um, I think the only thing I would say is if you're interested in a startup, like just do it. Like I think a lot of people are waiting for this moment where they're going to feel ready 
or like, Hey, I just need to have that one more job. I need to have that one more experience. I just need to build that one more skill. Like just go do it. You're going to make a ton of mistakes. You're going to do everything wrong. And it's like, it's okay. You should just go ahead and do it. Like once you have the experience, you'll know if it's for you. Like my, my first experience was like full of problems. It ended in failure. It was really rough and I never had a better time in my life. And so I knew it was for me and it just gives you a ton of learnings to make the next one better. And if it's not for you, it's better to learn that early instead of like always hoping or wishing or regretful that you never did it, just like do it. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. Then now, you know, Uh, so that's my advice is just, if you're thinking about it, just go do it. Well, amazing. That's a, that's a great ending again. Thank you so much for coming and good luck with your next startup. Sweet. Thank you, Lucy. Appreciate the time. Great to be here. for listening to this discussion if you enjoyed it make sure to follow the podcast to hear about new episodes you can also find me on instagram or twitter under think with lucy let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked let's show nuance let's think 